Well, good morning, church. If you're in uh, kindergarten through the third grade, you're dismissed to go to Children's Church at this time. And the rest of us are going to turn to Exodus chapter 16 in our Bibles. Exodus chapter 16. Skyler alluded to, um, let's say, a problem, an issue that arose um, a couple of weeks ago. Am I? That, that might have fixed it. Let me unfix it. How, is that better? Hey, we found the right switch and lever and button and all that. Skyler alluded to a, a, an ongoing um, issue that we're facing here as a church a couple of weeks ago down in the basement, which is where our student ministry typically gathers. Um, we had a whole different type of living water situation than the one we sang about a few moments ago. Uh, we realized at the same time that the men's and women's restroom, it was funny to see that one wash across and people catch it occasionally, that was good, um, but uh, we, we had an issue where both men's and women's restrooms were uh, experiencing an obstruction at the same time. Now, it being the space that the student ministry meets in, we immediately assumed nefarious things were at play, um, but it turns out that there was a backup and a sewer line, and so our um, property team has been working on that for the last, actually it's going on a couple of weeks now. Um, but yesterday will be one of my favorite days, I think, at least the, my, one of the favorite days I've had in the past five years or so here. Um, and that's because Friday, as, as we worked to resolve this issue, we had a plumber come and look at it, and they said, well, it's bad. Um, you've got a sewer uh, line draining out of the church. And I'll get some of these terms wrong because I do this for a living, not like, you know, um, stuff that actually accomplishes, you know, physical manual things. And so I'll, do my, I'll give you... Um, I'll give you the pastor's version of the plumbing issue. And if you want to come back tonight at 6.30 for our members meeting, uh, our property chairman, Harold Deckard, will give you like the actual technical. He's got a drawing. It has colors. Uh, there's a diagram. I'm very excited to hear him present that tonight. Um, but the plumber ran a camera through the system and said, hey, you've got a cast iron pipe that is ruptured at this spot. It's collapsed. It's going to be expensive and long and painful. Um, to fix, and so as we considered the options, and he tried to work us into his schedule, uh, someone said, uh, someone had the idea that, hey, we could go in to our crawl space, and we could dig the pipe up ourselves. That's not like technical labor. That is, you know, trained monkey labor, and we have people that can accomplish that part here in our congregation. Uh, that's something even I can do, and so as they worked through that plan Friday evening, uh, our property team sent out a message to some of the men in the church, the uh, deacons and others, and said, hey, um, if we come in Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, uh, and we start getting to work on this, it's going to save two things. It's going to save the church some money, which is good, but it's also going to save some time, because we thought at the time none of the water on this side of the building worked. So if you're looking at, you know, you came in this part of the building, if you're looking at it from the street, everything kind of to the right of the middle uh, was not going to be accessible. The only bathrooms we're going to have for church gatherings are going to be way down in the fellowship hall. And if you're not really familiar with our facility, that's basically a half a block away, okay? Uh, and that was not ideal, we knew. And so we're like, well, is there a way that we can get a porta potty in the building? You know, that, all those things came up uh, as we were considering options. And so we had, uh, the thing that I love about yesterday is within, you know, less than about 12 hours notice, we had men here who had been a part of the church for less than a year. We had men who had grown up in the church here. Um, we had young teenagers. We had some who, if you multiply those young teenagers' age by a number, that would hit their age. Uh, we had a broad group of guys here crammed into our crawl space underneath where we're, all, where we're sitting and standing right now um, to do some work yesterday. And there were some that wanted to be here that couldn't, and that's awesome. We had, we had so many guys that we were working in shifts, 
Um, and they were able to get enough of it excavated so that the plumber could trace where everything drains and realize that actually the bathrooms on this side drain through a different part of that particular pipe that it's not ruptured there. It can get out just fine. Um, so we still have an issue. The basement bathrooms don't work, but it's okay if we make the high schoolers and middle schoolers walk a block to go to the bathroom. Um, we don't want everyone else to have to do that. And I say it's not, we're, we're going to fix that. Uh, it's, it's in the process still. But I'm thankful for yesterday, thankful for how God's people came together uh, to really get some stuff done. Uh, and that sort of pictures what, we, what happens often here as God's people work shoulder to shoulder to carry out the, me, the, the mission that God has placed us here for. And again, if you want like the actual technical explanation um, a graph, there's a graph involved, I assume, there's labels, um, there will be an exact down-to-the-penny price tag for the whole project, okay, um, we'll stop there. Uh, so, Exodus chapter 16 is where we're going to be, Exodus chapter 16, we journeyed into the wilderness last week. And we'll remain there for our entire stay in the book of Exodus this year. We're in the wilderness following Israel as they learn what it means to be a free people following a holy God. The first act of Exodus is all about salvation. It's about how God hears the cry of his people and sovereignly works in the events of just everyday life to save them. That's what we have seen thus far as we studied Exodus, those first 15 chapters. Jerry did a great job the first Sunday of this year recapping much of that for us. The second act, where we are now, this is about sanctification, what it means to follow God. That's what sanctification means. It's becoming like Jesus. It's everything that happens to you from the moment that you're saved until the moment that you die. It's all the joys and all the sorrows and the victories and the losses. All those things are part of your sanctification. They all work together to shape you to be like Jesus. And God uses this wilderness wandering to sanctify Israel, to shape them into what He has already called them to be. He met uh, them there in their thirst there at the end of chapter 15. And today we'll see that He meets them in an even more powerful way in their hunger. Let's read together from Exodus, 1, beginning in, uh, Exodus 16, beginning in verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 20, and then we'll pray. Moses writes, the entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted, instead... You brought us into the wilderness to make a, this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they, prepare, uh, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening, and all the bread you want in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we 
complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual, according to the number of people according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who had gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who had gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. So Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. They didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and, the bread, the, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you now as the God who provides. Lord, help us to trust that you are the God who provides for us. You meet our needs before we even know them. As we read from the Old Testament this morning, God, you, you have known and called us from before the foundation of the world, from the time that we were in the womb, from before we were known by anyone else, God, we were known by you. And Lord, be it something as necessary to life as water or food or even the, the air that we breathe now, God, you provide it all. And Lord, there are many unknowns in all of our minds that we are relying on you today to provide for. And we pray that you would help us through the wisdom of your word, through the working of your Holy Spirit, to trust that you're going to provide, to trust and not to complain, to obey and not to grumble. Lord, help us learn quickly in our lives a lesson that Israel will struggle with throughout this Exodus account. Father, help us to see how Your glory, Your goodness, it overcomes the sin of our heart. It overcomes the complaining. It overcomes the distrust. It overcomes the things that we know we need to graduate from, so to speak, as believers who are being sanctified. God, we need to give up our grumbling. We need to give up our complaining. We need to give up many of our habits, many of our addictions that reflect the brokenness of our lives before we came to Christ. And Lord, help us have faith to do it today. We know that only comes through your Holy Spirit. And so God, that's, that's why we pray now is to help, is to ask you to, through your Holy Spirit to help our hearts. God, help our unbelieving hearts, strengthen us, 
remind us that it's not based on our performance, it's not based on how good we are, it's not based on how much Bible we know, it's not based on any of those things that you save us, God. It's based on your love for us that you save us by grace alone, through faith alone, for your glory alone. Lord, let us rest in that knowing that you have saved us and promised to provide. Let's cement that truth like concrete in our hearts. so that we can give up complaining, we can give up doubting, we can give up grumbling. We can do it all for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I've been praying this week for Cornerstone Baptist uh, here in town. They have a new pastor starting this morning, and I'm excited to see how God uses him and, and uses that church in the days ahead. His name is Tyler Tebrink, and it could be Tebram, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I haven't heard it said. I've just spoken with him um, uh, through a few messages. But I invite you to join me in praying for him and in praying for Cornerstone this week, and I can't remind us of this enough, the other churches in our community, uh, they're not our competitors, they are our co-laborers, right? And so we want, uh, particularly the churches that believe uh, like we do, we want them to be thriving, we want them to be successful, and so we pray. I, I encourage you to join me in praying for Tyler and praying for Cornerstone this week. But as I thought about Tyler and his family moving uh, from Iowa to Centralia this week, it reminded me, of what was probably the busiest moment in my life. In March 2018, we moved to Centralia. We, we sold a house. We bought a house. We closed out a chapter in ministry. We said goodbye to our friends. We moved our stuff to town on a Tuesday. We made our first visit to the urgent care uh, in Columbia on a Tuesday night. And then early Wednesday morning, we left for Mobile, Alabama, where I was doing a, va a wedding. And we spent three days in New Orleans. And then we came back for my first week as the pastor here at First Baptist Centralia. It was an exciting time. It was a great time, but as I remember, it's all a little bit of a blur because it happened quickly. When Moses opens chapter 16 of Exodus by telling us it's the 15th day of the second month, he's telling us that we're now one month removed from the Passover. This had been the busiest month in Israel's life. The busiest month in their history. Israel journeys, uh, their, their journey from freedom, or from slavery to freedom, began one month ago as we read this text. They left Egypt, they camped by the Red Sea, they faced certain death as Pharaoh and his army bared down on them. They miraculously crossed the Red Sea. They watched that very same army be swept away as the Red Sea returned to its place. And if you were here last week, you remember the Israelites had another problem. They, they left the Red Sea. They journeyed into the wilderness with no source of fresh water. And when their three-day journey finally yielded an oasis, this is going to turn out bad, isn't it? Someone booby-trapped me. Sounds like something Dwayne would do. Just kidding, Dwayne would never do that. You all know that. Danielle would, Dwayne would not. Um, so three days into the wilderness with no source of fresh water, they finally come on an oasis, and the oasis is tainted. It's bitter water. It's undrinkable water at Mara. Their problem was thirst. Their thirst would have led to dehydration, and dehydration would have eventually led to death. So we dealt with the problem of thirst last night. answered that. He gave Moses a water purification device in the form of a tree. He threw it into the spring at Mara. The spring turned to fresh water miraculously, and then God led them to a place called uh, Elam, uh, a place that is blessed, a place that had plenty of food, 
plenty of water, and they rested and they recovered there, and now they have moved on from Elam. And in chapter 16, we find a new problem. And on the surface, we may say it's hunger, but I, I don't know that I'm convinced that that is the case after, sitting, after stewing in the text for a little bit this week. How many, how many livestock people do we have here? If you've got a herd of some sort, uh, raise your hand. It can be, you know, if you, could, some of you it's cats. I don't know. Uh, that counts as a herd, I guess, if you have enough of them. But I know we have some sheep people. Uh, I know we have some, uh, some cattle people. We have some folks that have some livestock, right? Now, Randy raised his hand. He was the one that was brave enough. Um, he raised his hand. You, got, you guys raised, you have some cattle, right? Is that just horses right now? You're not going to be very helpful for this illustration. Hang on. To the, we'll, we'll come back around to horses. If it gets to horses, things have gotten bad, okay? Dan over here, Dan, I know you have some sheep, right? I'm going to pick on you since Bob Fair's not here. Uh, I want to pick on you. You've got some sheep. Now, if things go badly in society, right, if, if currency collapses, if, you know, COVID gets worse or the next COVID, whatever it is, if it cancels everything, uh, or the zombie apocalypse, whatever it is that takes us out, Dan's going to have more food than me. Right, but you have some like grand champion sheep and whatnot, right? But I bet they taste just like the regular run-of-the-mill sheep, right? Now, now Dan's not going to starve. It's true for Randy, too. I just didn't want to go there <laughs> at 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay, if it comes to, if Randy's got to eat his herd to survive, not to mention you cat people, it could get that bad, but I don't think it's going to. I point that out. Because it seems on the surface like Israel's problem was food, right? We're, we're out in the wilderness. We've got our water good, but they complain, God, we were, we're going to starve. Back in Egypt, we had plenty of food. We sat by fiery pots of meat. We had everything. I don't even, I should have researched. I don't know what a pot of meat is, but it sounds good. Um, I'd be down for it. That's a good men's retreat type of, 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 of idea, right? I, I point out the herd issue. Because if you turn over to chapter 17, not all that long later, right? And you read verse 3. But the people, these same people, thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Well, uh, the livestock probably had some other uses too, but they certainly could have been used for food. You see, Exodus 15 was quite specific. They were thirsty and had no water. They went three days without finding it, so they, they panicked. But if you look at verse 16, Moses never tells us Israel was short on food. He never even says they were hungry. I'm not saying they weren't, given they'd probably been in an agricultural society for their entire lives where they planted and grew their own food. Now they're nomads. They were probably not very well equipped for the month that they had just had. Food would have been a problem at some point, but we have no concrete evidence in the text that they were actually hungry even, much less starving at this point. So the problem, I would submit to you, is bigger than food. God told Moses in verse 4, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. The problem in Exodus 16, it's not their stomach, it's their heart. Are they going to obey what God has commanded? 
We learn early in this chapter that they weren't doing so hot in that regard. Look at verse 2. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The entire community. You see, what Israel shows here is the problem of a complaining heart. They showed uh, continued symptoms of heart disease really throughout the book of Exodus. And it's not cholesterol, it's not atrial fibrillation, it's nothing like that. Their heart disease is a complaining heart. And it wasn't one or two squeaky wheels. No, we're, we're, pointed, we're, we're shown here, verse 1, the entire Israelite community departed Elam. And in verse 2, the entire Israelite community complained. Moses was very specific here, pointing out that just as many who left Elam are the ones who were complaining. It was an everybody issue. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The family who travels together complains together. Maybe you've experienced that on a family road trip at some point, but here's the problem. A complaining heart is a distrustful, unsubmissive, ungrateful, and forgetful heart toward God. It, it falsely accuses others. These are all things we see in this text. It falsely accuses others, and it distracts us from real solutions, from effective solutions to the problem around us. And we need to just be clear about something up front as much as we can be. Complaining is sin. Full stop. The Bible's explicit here. Philippians 2.14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. James 5.9. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. John 6.43. Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. First Peter 4 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. We could reference more passages, but we'll let those stand on their own for now. Complaining reveals much about our hearts. A complaining heart is distrustful of God. Remember, Israel is inventing a crisis here. And how much had God provided for them already? These people live through the plagues. They lived through the Passover. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw the, the bitter spring of Marah turned into drinkable water. They were led by a, a pillar of a fire by night and cloud by day to, to the, the, the springs at Elam, a place where they were cared for so well. They should have trusted that God was going to provide. But instead they decided that they'd rather go back to being slaves? This is insanity. But it's no more insane than we are when we complain about our circumstances. See, whatever it is that we're, uh, we're tempted to complain about, God has put that circumstance, that person, that situation in your life, and He has done it for a, a purpose. And we've got to come to the place where we trust that. I'm not saying that what we're talking about today is going to be easy. This is, this is a particularly difficult text when we start reckoning with its consequences. But, but we have to come to the place where we can trust that whatever it is we're tempted to complain about, God has placed that in our lives on purpose, on His purpose. And we need to trust that because it's revealed to us here that Israel didn't. That doesn't mean you don't work to change your circumstances or to evangelize the lost people around you or any of those things. Israel didn't stop looking for food, and you shouldn't stop doing the things that God has called you to do. But in the midst of doing that, in the midst of living life, trust that God is in control, that God will provide, even when you can't see it. 
Part of the problem is that Israel forgot. They had momentary amnesia. They forgot what God had done. So much so, in fact, that they, they, they directed their complaint to the wrong department, right? Look back at Moses' response at the end of verse 8. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us. They're against the Lord. You see, recognize, church, that if you believe God is sovereign, and, and all Christians believe that God is sovereign, we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll piddle a little bit about just what he controls and what he doesn't, but we recognize that God is sovereign, then everything that we complain about in life really comes back to a complaint against him. You're unsatisfied with the life that God has ordained for you. See, God is changing Israel here. And change hurts. The only person that likes change is a wet baby, and they even scream through the process most of the time. Israel was leading the lifestyle, leaving behind the lifestyle they had known. They were leaving behind slavery and learning to live in freedom. And just like we have to repent of our sin, leave that lifestyle behind, and learn to live for God's glory, they were doing the same thing. In church, that's hard. It's not easy, but it's, it's possible. And not only is it possible, it's what God requires of us as His people. He both requires and empowers us to lead a complaint-free life. That's the beautiful part about our relationship with God, church, is that He never requires us to do anything that He doesn't empower us to do in the first place. Because on our own, we can't do anything spiritually, right? Ephesians 2 tells us we're spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything. So anything we can do spiritually happens because God has brought us to life and empowers us to do it. And so He never calls us to do anything that He doesn't empower us to accomplish. Israel's longing to go back to the old way of life at the end of verse 3 is really like an addict drawn into a relapse. They were in denial. When they were actually in Egypt, they hated it. They cried out against it. In fact, that was the catalyst for all the events of the Exodus, right? In the beginning of the book, we're told that God heard Israel's cry. It's a reminder that they are forgetful in this moment, right? Because when they were in slavery, they didn't go complaining to Moses. They didn't really know Moses was their leader at that point. It doesn't tell us they complained to Pharaoh, which they might have done. It tells us they cried out to God, and God responds. And that's the catalyst that kicks off the events of the Exodus. But now looking back on it, they say, well, slavery wasn't so bad. They remember it fondly. They think of it as something good, something desirable. They think of it as something they wouldn't mind going back to. That's the language of addiction. They're still addicted to their old circumstances. Many of us are still addicted to sins that we know in our heart we should have put away years ago. W.A. Criswell, the old pastor of First Baptist Dallas, president of Southern Baptist Convention, he said this, you can get people out of slavery in an instant, but you can't get the slavery out of the people except through a long process. And you can substitute the word slavery there for any kind of sin. Though legally they were free, physically they were free, actually they hadn't learned how to be and how to think and how to work out that freedom in their lives. And that's the reason why God doesn't take them from the Red Sea to the promised land. That's where we want to get to, right? We want to, as God's people, go from that moment that God 
draws us out of our sin, and we want to get right to perfection. We want to get right to glory. We want to get right to heaven, right to where that relationship is perfect. And a lot of us, I think, struggle in our relationship with God or in our, in our sanctification and our growth as believers because to some level, we thought that would happen on a rocket ship trajectory, right? Like, I am saved today, and maybe I'm not Billy Graham by next week, but give me a couple of weeks, and things are going to go well. But instead, between those two points, we have our own wilderness wandering as we learn to grow out of our sin and into the holiness that God has already set us aside for. Church, there's a reason why God has us in our circumstances. There's a reason that relationship, there's a reason that person, there's a reason that burden is in your life. And instead of complaining to God, seeking a change, run to God and seek wisdom for how not to get away from that, but to glorify God in that circumstance, in that relationship, in that wilderness wandering. Because when you do, God actually gives you something better. Look at verse 4. We see that God overcomes our sin by revealing to us His glory. It says, Then the, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are going out, going to go out each day, gather enough for that day. This is the way, this way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Then on the sixth day, they'll prepare what they bring in. It'll be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And if you look down at the end of verse 8, that's right, go on to verse 9. Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, there's that wholeness again, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory was revealed. God overcomes sin by revealing Himself, by revealing His glory. We, we see that in verse 7 is the first appearance of that idea, the glory of the Lord. The first time that is phrased that way in Scripture. It's a phrase of incredible significance. And Moses makes clear for us there but that by revealing his glory, God revealing his nature, his character, his actions, and doing that, he's actually providing for his people then and there. So much more so than the bread he's going to rain from heaven, from the quail that show up. The most important thing that God was revealing in their struggle was himself. Those of you that have been through really hard life stuff, whether it's a, a disease, whether it's a uh, a divorce that God has brought you through and restored you to fellowship with Him, whether it's, um, or whether it's just whatever God has done to strengthen you in your life, some of you, it's physical things, it's relational things. You look back on that difficult time, and I think that many of you would say that, look, before that I had a relationship with God, but after I walked through that wilderness, God is so much more to me now than He was then. I understand Him more. I worship Him more. I have experienced Him carry me through the darkness more. My relationship with Him is deeper. The thing that God reveals to us most in our wilderness is not the solution. It is Himself. He reveals His character and His nature to His people as He provides for them. And we have a little bit of a repetition here. Verses 7-9. through nine, Three times... Israel's reminded that God has heard their complaint. And he also reiterates that when the time comes, when he provides, he'll know that it was from, they'll know that it was from him and from nobody else. It's no coincidence that food shows up in the morning. It's because God 
heard their complaint. God hears us when we call out to Him, and He also hears us when we complain to Him. One is calling out in obedience. One is calling out in faith. Complaining, as we've talked about, is sin, yet God hears that too. And He's so good that He even responded to it in this instance, and in a good way. Verse 10, He manifests Himself. He shows them His glory in the cloud. He gives them food, and He gives them rest. He made a Sabbath provision here. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But, but He showed them who He was. That's the most important piece here. God reminds them that He is with them. And that's what they need most. Regardless of whatever the felt need is in the moment. And many of us would, would admit that we sit here this morning with hopes of, maybe not tomorrow being better, but the two or three weeks down the road, maybe a couple of months from down the road from now, we would look at our lives and say, well, I hope that this list of things is changed and is better. And for those to happen, I need X and Y and Z. Sometimes they're financial, sometimes they're social, sometimes they're relational, sometimes it's a job situation, whatever it will be. My hope is that in January, I, when I'm looking back at January from June, I can see that these things are all better and I have things that I think I need to get there. But what God is teaching Israel here is the thing that you need most to get there, the thing that you need most for life to, to be more meaningful, to be more joyful, to reflect God's glory more is more of God. It's not more of stuff. But then he actually does go on and give them exactly what they asked for, what they needed. He overcomes their sin by his provision, by his providence. In verse 11, God explains exactly what he'll do. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. You see, there's just as much providence in the or, uh, just as much glory in the or, ordinary providence of God as there is in any miracle He has ever performed. Every time He takes care of our needs, spares us from danger, every time He enables us to repent of our sin or to believe in His promises, every time He works things out in a way that seemed impossible, we see a little bit more of who He is. We see a little bit more of His glory in that provision. God's simply providing breath for us daily is a reminder of His incredible power. That should cause us to praise Him and commit ourselves to live for Him despite whatever circumstances He places in front of us. I remember our last family vacation. We were in a busy tourist town and we had been doing some shopping and playing some games and doing some various things and we decided it was time to go and eat. And the individual in charge of planning things like that did not plan ahead well and so in this busy tourist town, we thought, well, there's two or three restaurants we want to try. Let's try this one first. And we went there, and I walked in, and I said, uh, we need a table, please. I said, I'm in your party. I'm like, nine. <laughs> I said, oh, it'll be like nine hours. Uh, cool, that's not, I mean, an hour and a half or something. So we did that little song and dance routine at three or four restaurants, wasted a bunch of time, eventually drove half an hour away, because we wanted to eat somewhere. You know, you're on vacation, you want to eat somewhere you don't have here. We drove half an hour away and ate at Cracker Barrel, which we could have done in Columbia, right? We could have driven half an hour from our house and eaten at Cracker Barrel. But you know when we got there, we got a table right away. We went and sat down. They brought biscuits and cornbread, as God intended. I ordered the Sunday homestyle chicken, and it hit the spot. I, I, was, I, I was in a much better place emotionally, physically, all 
things. I was hungry, and that was exactly what I needed. It hit the spot. And I was a joyful man after that meal. In fact, the Sunday home-style chicken is so big that you get a second piece of chicken. You can take that home with you, eat it the next morning for breakfast. Pro tip, you're welcome. But church, here's the thing. When we fully decided we're going to trust in God, whatever the circumstance is that he puts in front of us, we're going to be resigned that it's exactly what we need. I didn't initially set out seeking the Sunday home-style chicken, but it was exactly what I needed both that night and the morning after. Whatever circumstance God has put in our lives, when we get to the point that Israel wasn't too yet, and if we're, if we're honest with each other, some of us say, I'm not there yet either, but Lord, I'm trying. And part of why we're here is to help each other get to that point. But we're going to be able to say that God, whatever circumstance you put in front of me, I trust that it's exactly what I need. Because you're the God who provides. And we forget that he's the God who provides, but he never does. And it may be joyful things. It may be parenthood. It may be a great marriage. It may be a great church family. It may be a great job. It may be a wonderful house. It may be a ton of blessings. But it may be a loss of a loved one. It may be a miserable job. It may be brokenness in your family. It may be chronic disease. Whatever it is, there's a point that we can get to, Christians, where we will resolve in our minds that whatever we have on our plate today, that's just what we needed. might not be what we would have ordered, but God gives us what we needed. And that may sound like a foreign language to you. Let me, help, let me just share a couple of verses that, that help me in this area. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven, and He does whatever he pleases. Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Burying the truth of those passages in your heart will kill complaining. God has provided for you. He has authored your circumstances, and sometimes those circumstances involve wandering in the wilderness. But even in that difficulty, God will supply all your needs, and He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. I left out the verse that says He'll always tell you the what and the why of those circumstances, and you'll always understand them. I didn't include those verses in there because they're not in this Bible. If you find it, then you've got the wrong Bible probably, and you throw that one away and start over. Because those aren't there. We don't get the why often. God just gives us the what. God is going to provide so that our sin will be overcome. And He does that. Oh, verse 12 tells us why. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So much of what God does in Exodus comes back to that reason. He rescues Israel so that Israel will know that He is the Lord. He overcomes Egypt so that Egypt will know that He is the Lord. He's giving them what they need so that they will know, so they'll be convinced more than they've ever convinced, been convinced before that the Lord is 
God. The tangible way he promises to do that in the, in the text is by raining down manna from heaven, by these quail miraculously showing up. But when we look back on that manna, and we'll talk more about the manna next week, this bread from heaven, we see that it's actually a signpost. We get these signposts often in the Old Testament. I used to use, uh, uh, not to, just because I'm, I'm going to use a new reference here, just because I don't want to make two Cracker Barrel references in one uh, sermon, because that and I'll end up there for lunch, and that would be bad. Um, but as, we're, as we drive down, uh, as we go on family trips from time to time, uh, whether we're going back to visit family in Tennessee or we're going on vacation uh, in the summer, I've noticed, and I finally stopped at one back over Christmas, but I've noticed that there's this, uh, this most American thing in the world, the biggest gas station on the planet, called Bucky's. And they have an advertising budget, y'all. My goodness. They buy every billboard within, I think, a 75-mile radius of their gas stations. Um, and because they have a million pumps and everyone can go there. And, and so as, as we keep driving through the various places we're going, and every other billboard is a Bucky's, I don't even know that my kids are aware of what's going on. They're plugged into advice. They're watching a movie. Yet one of them from the back of the car, the back of the van, will, will say, can we stop at Bucky's? And I was initially resistant because, I mean, this place is huge. But we finally stopped. We finally bit into their marketing scheme. Uh, and we went in. And they have, uh, they have good food, and so I will certainly go back. Um, but we saw, the, we saw the signs over and over and over again, and eventually we got to the place that we were being pointed to. All over the Old Testament church, we have these signs that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is going to come, that God is going to rescue his people. And the manna is actually one of those signs. This bread from heaven, Jesus goes back and grabs a hold of it in John chapter 6. So truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat, who, uh, anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' words move us from the physical provision of God, God providing food so the Israelites can stay alive, to spiritual bread, spiritual provision, from the earthly to the eternal, from the exodus all the way to the cross. This manna in the wilderness was another signpost that pointed Israel to salvation in Christ. They, they were taught to, to physically depend on God through the manna to meet all their needs. But it had limitations, right? It could only be left out for so long, had to be regathered every day, wasn't going to sustain them forever. And as Jesus pointed out, everybody who ate it is now dead. But that bread taught them something. It taught them to fully rely on God for their sustenance, for their salvation. Until that day that he sent the true bread, that he sent true salvation in the work of Jesus who offered his body on the cross to give life to the world. And the meaning of the manna, the meaning of what we see here is that we all need Jesus. We continually feed on Jesus. Whether you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior or, or you've trusted Him years ago and you have a vibrant relationship with Him now, then you'll recognize that what we need most desperately to trust that God is going to provide Christ Himself. 
The Bible tells us that we're all born separated from God. We are sinners. That sin nature that we're born with bears itself out to be true in our actions. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we are to repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you sit here today knowing that you haven't done that, looking at the circumstances of life and going, I legitimately don't know how I'm going to get through this. There's a God out there who is already destined, already chosen to, already laid the foundation for the circumstances by which He's going to provide for you. Just repent of your sins. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. And He will save you. And He will provide for you. And those of us who belong to Him already, we need to recognize that we never graduate from the Gospel. We never outgrow our need for what Christ did on the cross. And we're all going to struggle with a complaining spirit. We're all going to struggle with the brokenness that we see in the Israelites. And when we try to do it on our own, look what's going to happen. It shows us in verse 20 of the text. That's why we stopped today. Exodus 16, verse 20. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some of the people left part of it out until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Some of us continue to struggle in our walk with God because we've never fully, we've never done exactly what He has told us to. We do some of the stuff. Okay, we're mostly obedient. We've given in most areas of our lives. But we're still leaving a little bit of it out there. And I think that you would identify with me when I've tried that, that whatever part of your life that you go, yeah, I'm just going to handle that part on my own, it breads worms and it stinks. So church, we've got to decide today. Do we trust that God's going to give us what we need? Or do we look back at the way life used to be? Do we look back at our own personal Egypt, our own personal slavery, the time that we thought we had life handled on our own, the time that we thought we had it all figured out? And do we say, it wasn't so bad. We want to try that again. Where do we sit? Today. My, here's, here's my prayer as we close. My prayer is this. That God takes our hearts and that wherever we are in life right now, He convinces us He's got it. He's going to provide. And we can trust in that. I want to leave you with the example of Paul. If anyone in the Bible had occasion to complain, it was Paul, right? His life plan was interrupted. He'd been unfairly arrested. He wanted to get to Spain to share the gospel. He got arrested in Jerusalem, got transported to Rome. He was unfairly arrested. He was beaten. He was jailed. He was mistreated in his confinement. And he was sent to a place where history believes he was probably executed. He recognized that God was in all those circumstances, all the things that led him to that place in a Roman prison where he wrote a letter back to the church at Philippi. And while probably shackled to a Roman soldier, he wrote these words. I don't say this out of need. For, what I, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
That last verse has been co-opted in all sorts of different areas for sports teams and businesses and overcoming cancer and all those things. And those aren't bad things, but that's not what Paul has in mind directly. He means I can get through this. I can do it joyfully. I can do it without complaining. I'm okay in this place about to be killed because God put me here and he can make me okay. That's opposite to Israel's response. Now we've got food. We're going to complain about food anyway. God, I have nothing and I'm probably, not going, to die, I'm probably going to die and I'm not going to complain despite that. Who are we going to be like? My hope is that we come to reflect Paul, and I think that we will, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, and because God has already promised to get us there, church, if we'll just follow Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, You are good, and Your goodness endures forever. Just as You were good to reign food from heaven to bring quail into the camp of the Israelites, God, to provide for them. You are good to provide for us. And God, we come before you recognizing that there are days that you provide exactly what we ask for, like you do in Exodus 16 when we see you providing the food that Israel thought that they needed. More importantly, you provided them a, a, a perception of your glory and understanding of who you are that, that we don't get to experience. God, you provided all that, and yet there are some days where you provide the bitter water of the spring at Merah, like we saw in Exodus 15. God, we confess there are people in this room sitting in both camps. God, we, some of us are rejoicing with the, the abundance you have provided, and some of us are struggling with the bitterness that you have provided, God, but help us as your people to not grow bitter against you and complain against you and complain against the people around us, but, Father, to resign ourselves to allow that bitterness to galvanize our love for you, our resolve to worship you, just like Paul did, God. You had thrown so much bitterness at him in life. He did not get to go where he wanted. He did not experience the freedom that we experienced. He likely died as a martyr, yet as he did so, He penned the inspired words that you have encouraged so many of us with, God, that through you, we can do this. Not on our own, not through grumbling, not through, not through the hurt that many of us feel, but through your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We, too, have everything that we need. God, we can say it, help us to believe it, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said,